Well, let's pray. Good morning. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. It is rich and we know it is true and empowering for us. And we want to come under it this morning and allow it to speak to our hearts, to our minds, to direct our lives and challenge us and lead us on as a church. And I pray, Lord, that you'd make manifest in me a gift of teaching and exhortation and whatever else is required for this task that I might get out of the way and you might do what you want to do in all of us. Through your word now, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I was two years old, we bought a dog as a family. His name was Rusty and Rusty was a Welsh corgi. Does anyone know what he would look like then? Rusty was a street fighter back in the days when dogs roamed a little bit more in the early 70s. He didn't know his legs were that long. And when he fought with all his heart, the local Dalmatian, he didn't know the Dalmatian was just sparring with him and having fun. Rusty was loyal. Rusty gave me, as a young boy, what could only be described as wholehearted devotion. In fact, when you think about the idea of wholehearted, can you beat the wholehearted loyalty of a dog to its master? I mean, it's hard. It's been said that dogs have masters and cats have staff. <laughs> Some of you are disagreeing, disagreeing. We've had dogs and cats and I would agree on that, but Hey, I could be wrong. The old joke says a dog looks at you and thinks, you feed me, you pat me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God, small g. But a cat looks at you and thinks, you feed me, pat me, shelter me, love me, I must be God. <laughs> today we're in the second week of a series entitled Wholehearted, and today we're considering what it looks like to be a wholehearted church. It's a genuine question. What does it look like for us at Northern Life to be wholehearted? Last week, we made mention of the fact that for a Hebrew, an Israelite, the heart really mattered. It was the, the center of uh, thought. It was about our physicality. It was about emotion. It was where our desires lived. So it was where choice came from. The entirety of a person's being was wrapped up in the heart. So it makes sense that the Lord wanted wholehearted devotion from his people. It encompasses this idea of commitment, devotion, loyalty. It's no wonder that we're told that the greatest king in the Old Testament, King David, who most uh, strongly points us with his life to Jesus, the King of Kings, was chosen because of his heart. When looking for who to anoint next to be king after Saul, in 1 Samuel 16, we're told, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him, looking at certain candidates for the kingship. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 2 Chronicles 16.9 tells us, For the eyes of the Lord 
range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 1 Samuel 13 says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Young David, who would become king, was a man after God's own heart. So again, not as a rhetorical question that we know the easy answer for. What does it look like for Northern Life to be a church after God's own heart who would love and serve him with wholehearted devotion? Well, I wondered, where do you find that? And then I thought, well, if David's heart was good, maybe we look at what his heart produced. So out of his heart, he was a songwriter, and uh, he wrote many songs, and one of them Yuki read for us this morning, Psalm 27. It's a psalm of David, and I think it gives us an insight into what that heart, that is passionately hard after God, looks like. It's a captivated heart, a brave heart, and a soft heart. A captivated heart, a brave heart, and a soft heart. David writes in verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the presence, gazing upon Seeking him. One thing, this only, dwell, presence, gazing, seeking. Sounds like a captivated heart, doesn't it? David has plenty to do, whether it's caring for sheep as a young man or caring for Israel as king. Life has plenty of tasks. Yet in his song, when he opens up what is in his heart, we find the language of the unhurried, amen? The language of the unhurried, dwell, presence, gaze, seek. Takes your mind back, if you've been a Christian for a while, to the story of Mary and Martha. And Martha, two sisters, Martha's really busy, so busy. And yet Mary is at the feet of Jesus, Worshipping, gazing, learning. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part. Captivated hearts. I was 19 years old at French's Forest Baptist. I grew up as a Christian, made a commitment early in my life. My mum led me to the Lord. Uh, but there was a, a time that really shook me and changed me when a new youth pastor turned up. I'm about 19 and a half and he was about 23 and I remember he had this shoulder-length hair, curly hair. And he would do this funny thing. He would stand at the front in the middle of a sermon and hold his hair like this and say, Who are you, God? And I remember thinking, we know who God is. I mean, back then we didn't have the internet in 89. But um, we had a pretty good idea. We had good scholars. We had the Bible. We had good commentators, good commentaries. We sort of knew on an intellectual level who God is. But what he was doing was he was showing a heart posture that is a seeker. He's saying, I, I know about you, God, but who are you, God? I want to know. I want to know you. And there was this wrestle that was going on even as he preached. 
I'd never seen anyone depict that physical heart of a seeker like that. And what came along out of that ministry was a passion for prayer, to seek the Lord. And so I got swept up in this and we had lots of prayer meetings. And they were different prayer meetings than I'd experienced. We didn't sit around in circles. And it wasn't that we were chasing strange experiences, laughing on the floor and all that. I'm not putting any of that down, but it wasn't falling over backwards and sort of having particularly strange experiences, but it was very unique what happened on those late-night prayer meetings. We would walk around and we would confess sin and we would lie on the ground and we would, it would take hours and we'd have someone on the piano and we'd be singing songs. And there was a sense, more than I'd ever experienced in my life, of gazing, of dwelling of one thing, this only do I seek. Who are you, God? Who am I? What have you done? I know, but what does it mean for me of what you have done in Christ, in your love for me, demonstrated in Jesus' life, death and resurrection? And what does that mean for me? What is my role? This is what a seeker does, a person who is captivated. They spend time in the presence of the living God. We started fasting for days. I guess it was a mystical way of connecting with that seeking heart. And I look back and, and we fast for many days. And I think, was there pride in that young bunch of people's hearts? And I say, yes, absolutely. Uh, was there a sprint mentality rather than a marathon? Yeah, for sure. Was there... A lack of a wise perspective about life? Absolutely. They were under 23, 24, these people. Yet you couldn't deny the passion. And you know what's interesting looking back is so many people, I couldn't put a number on it, but it's well over 12, probably more towards 20, people out of that era and just before went into missionary service or pastoral ministry. There was a sense of God doing something in that church, and I would put it to you that it came out of a captivated heart. It matters, the passions that we store up and the desires, whether we are seeking after God. At that time, uh, we were encouraged to read about revivals, and so I read a lot about revivals in the 1700s and 1800s, people like John Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles, um, uh, not Charles Spurgeon, um, Charles Finney, and uh, one time I read this line in John Wesley's journals. It could have been George Whitfield, but one of them. He said, whole days and weeks have I spent in silent and prostrate prayer. And I still don't know what to do with that. Do you? What does that even mean that someone says, whole days and weeks have I spent in silent and prostrate prayer? I think, well, you come from a different era to us. Most of us have to go to work. And, I, and part of me wants to say... That man is depressed. He's overly melancholic. He needs the joy of the Lord. He's got a works righteousness. But I think history tells us that John Wesley was seeking hard after God in prayer, and it just happened. God used him to revive a nation, along with another group of people in a similar peer grouping that were seeking hard after God. Amen? You can't deny there, there was a captivation in their hearts. Are you captivated by God the Father? 
Are you captivated to know more of his love for you? This relentless pursuit he has as the prodigal father, the generous father who would do anything for you. Sacrificial love. Are you captivated by our Lord Jesus? Have you ever sung? I mean, Yuki is. <laughs> she was finding it hard to even get through that because it was talking about stuff she'd experienced. Are you captivated by the Lord Jesus? Have you ever sung? I know we have, so many of us, sung a hymn or a song like fairest Lord Jesus. And as you sing, you get choked up with emotion because you agree with the words. He is, Lord Jesus, is the fairest, the greatest, the most wonderful. There is not a name, an utterance from the mouth of a human that is more glorious. Amen? And more precious and more holy than the name of Jesus at whose feet every knee will bow on earth and under the earth. His name is above every other name. We need to be a church who are captivated by the glory of God in Christ in the gospel. Captivated. It's the opposite of bored. It's the opposite of familiar. Amen? It's the opposite of going through the motions. Why do you think, think about this, why do you think some churches grow and produce abundant fruit while others decline and even like every one of the seven churches of the Revelation, where John wrote to the churches in Revelation, not one of them exists there anymore. They're all gone. And even that part of Western Turkey it's mainly Islamic. There are not many Christian witnesses in that part of the world. Why does that happen? How does that happen? Well, it's a nuanced and multi-layered question, but surely if God doesn't just throw around blessing completely randomly, and he doesn't do that, what is he looking for? To bless and give abundant fruit. I would put it to you that he's looking for captivated hearts. Hearts, churches that will look very different from church to church. If you go back to 300 AD, that church, they're going to be doing things a bit different to us in the 21st century. But at the core, it's exactly the same. Wholehearted devotion. God, we are enamored by who you are and your glory and the name of Jesus. One thing this only do we seek that we may dwell in the presence, gazing upon the glory of the Lord and his gospel, seeking him. A wholehearted church has a captivated heart. And a wholehearted church has a brave heart. David writes, the Lord, in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Strongholds are fortified cities, places of genuine, real safety. David is saying, in my heart of hearts, I have a profound confidence in my God, in my heart of hearts. Verse 2, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. This is the song that he sings out of that heart. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident and verse 5, for in the day of trouble, God, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. 
He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. What's another way of describing verse 3? My heart will not fear. I will be brave. David had a brave heart. Out of a captivated heart came a brave heart. Some of us uh, read the story again recently with our Bible reading plan 4100. When a young shepherd boy named David stunned the armies of Israel and the Philistines by defeating a nine-foot giant named Goliath. 1 Samuel 16 and 17 are fascinating chapters to have a read of again with a view to thinking about David's heart. In 1 Samuel 16, King Saul is tormented and he's looking for a musician to soothe him. And we read in 16, 17, So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man and the Lord is with him. Interesting, a musician who writes songs about his captivation with the glory of the living God also happens to be brave and fine-looking to boot. David ends up taking supplies to the battle lines and hears, when he goes and does that job, he hears the taunts of the giant named Goliath. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, verse 26 says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Can you see that out of the intimacy of worship David has experienced with God, out of the captivation of his heart, David is deeply offended that Goliath would use the Lord's name in vain. That Goliath would mock God's people. Then David said to Saul, let no one lose what? Heart, because you can lose heart and hearts matter. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. David says, I will fight him with the strength of my God, who previously in my reservoir of spiritual experiences delivered a lion barehanded into my hands and a bear, a big, real black bear. Out of this memory, spiritual reservoir, David confidently says, I'll take him on. Out of the passion of his captivated heart comes bravery. Amen. The likes of which we are still talking about today. David takes five smooth stones and a sling and fells this giant in the power of the Spirit. I think if you get nothing else out of this message, this is it. Courage comes out of captivation. When we hear from God, because we know him, we've come close to him through the grace of Jesus, it fills us with a courage and bravery. Out of a captivated heart, we serve bravely. I don't know if many of us have been counting, but tomorrow is a Brave Days milestone for us. We have this vision called A Thousand Brave Days. 
Tomorrow is day 750 in our brave days. 750 days into a thousand brave days. So we opened this ministry centre 20th of October 2019. And so we've been out of it as much as we've been in it. We know that. Um, But when it hadn't been constructed yet, take a year off that, the end of 2018, this was on its way to being uh, developed, I started thinking on a blank sheet of paper, what might we call the first period of time? I had this sense that there was a, a decent push of ministry that was required and you know, American presidents have the first hundred days and so we got thinking, well, it's like the first thousand days, it's a bit under three years. So we started brainstorming, what could it be? And then I thought of this great line, push 1,000. And I told Janet and she said, no. No woman ever wants to have that name. That's, that is out. Go back to your drawing board. And I went, yes, sir. I thought that was a great name, but... I think Karen said the same, same thing in an elders' meeting. <clears throat> no, John, I keep thinking. So then there was a thousand memorable days, a thousand heroic days, one thousand days of wonder, one thousand days of change. Of course, the whole point was to encourage the church to put some money, some rocket fuel towards this initial launch that would involve a bigger budget. We probably need to put on some staff. Um, we need to pay electricity bills that we don't even know how big they are. And so we, we asked if we could raise 100000 and we raised nearly 132000 and the rest uh, probably will come in. We've done so well through the generosity of the church. But that was what it was all about. And uh, so then for a while it was just a thousand days. A thousand days could be what we called this first period. And then we felt like the Lord gave us a thousand brave days. One thousand brave days. So we're 750 days in. Have we slain any giants in our first 750 brave days? I feel like our inoculated Western lives are hard to sort of see what bravery looks like sometimes. How many giants have you taken on? I haven't done any technology. (laughs) But we have done all sorts of things. We've successfully navigated the global pandemic whilst retaining unity and ministry. Praise God. It's been an amazing challenge for us as a church. We shifted with two days' notice to church online and kept doing it on and off without much of a hitch, mobilising our church through video recordings. And you know what? I appreciate that takes bravery. We had so many. I think I added up 70 or 80 people contributing. That's not easy to pray in front of a camera knowing people might be looking at your face and you wonder, am I going to look silly? But so many people said, I'm just going to do it. We had pastoral care teams mobilised and new forms of creativity and Bible reading podcasts throughout the time. We've done a lot of brave things, but I think the most brave things have been done when no one's watching on an individual level, because that's what churches are. We're a bunch of people 
who come together for some of the week, but most of the week we're out there representing Christ, representing this little body of Christians. So what have these individuals been doing? I think some of the bravest things done in the last 750 days of people in their significant relationships have spoken up with truth. Truth in love. Because the easiest thing is to just be passive and let life just flow along and not stand up for what needs to be said. And that's happened again and again and it's taken immense courage. I know people have shared the truth of the gospel with their neighbours or they've stepped into spaces that are hard as they love people that are hard to love. Not everyone's easy to love, are they? And that takes immense courage when you're doing it in the name of Jesus because the Bible and the Lord have said, I want you to love people. And you know, as Richard said before, people have given sacrificially. We made our budget in the last year. They've given towards the proclamation of the gospel. And that's taken bravery. And many people, over a dozen, I think, have signed up for the community coach program that um, Virginia is pulling together. And we're waiting for that to be launched. But that takes huge bravery to go into some random person's home and listen and try to help them move towards a more fruitful, healthy life. People have bravely said goodbye to loved ones, to soulmates. And others have risked their lives as essential workers in health and teaching and other professions in this COVID world. And well done. These, these things have been brave. Bravery is always rejecting passivity, isn't it? And that's what we want to keep doing as a church, to stand up, like the book of Daniel taught us, stand up and stand out, to speak up and call out and invite in. Amen? God is looking for bravery in the hearts of northern life. Because like the psalmist, we know in deep places the Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? The Lord is the stronghold of our lives. Of whom shall we be afraid? We are here to make a difference in this generation, in this area, on this canvas of colour onto which God is painting his story in this part of history. We're part of it. A wholehearted church has a captivated heart, a brave heart, and a soft heart. A soft heart. Verse 7 says, Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Verse 11, Teach me your ways, Lord. David is soft. Lead me in a straight path. Verse 13, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. David's a learner. He's got a soft heart, doesn't he? Think about David. He's got a soft heart. When Nathan rebuked him about his sin, he didn't, like so many of the other kings, push it away and make excuses. He actually accepted that he had sinned. And Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. That was his heart, soft, repentant. A soft heart waits on the Lord because a soft heart is submitted to the timing and the will of God. The timing and the will of God. I've told you before that um, Leanne and I, like many of you, have been blessed to see God breathe on a church. 
really significantly, what you might call a, a, a mini-revival, a restoring, a reviving. Um, and it's such a privilege to see God do a work that only he can do. And he wants to do it again. Caring Bar Baptist was a church that we were at for just under 19 years. And um, we went there in, in 95. And in 97, I became the pastor. I was the associate pastor. And at that time, the church was really beaten up. We were just going through a difficult time. Uh, but there was an expectation. There was anticipation that God could do something new, yet people were drained. And so we started to fast and pray. We started to seek God. And at the end, I remember at the end, at the end of a three-day fast, we had this communion service. And I'm, I'm talking about this because of soft hearts. And there were about 25 people at this communion service. It was a night service out in the back hall. It was just a small little room. And I remember there was a cross and there was a communion table, a bit like this, and we were all spread out, and we asked people to consider who they might need to get right with before coming to the table. And all of a sudden, two of the oldest men in our church were weeping, and they had met at the back, and they started walking down in between us, and they went up and they served each other communion. And it sticks in my memory. That's a soft-hearted church. And... A couple of years later on, we got to move into a massive factory. And just before real growth started happening, we were uh, about 18 months in this tiny space. And we had probably about 80 people in a room. And we went through Revelation in an hour one night on a Sunday night service. And I've never seen this happen again since. But... It was this spontaneous conviction and we went into a prayer meeting directly after the sermon for 40, 45 minutes. There was just weeping and crying out to God after we had been sort of convicted by the power of revelation and the glory of Jesus. And interestingly, that church went through a revival after that time. There's something so powerful about having a soft heart and seeking after the living God and being open to what he wants to do. Hearts, I think before they're... I don't think it goes captivated, brave, soft. I think it probably goes soft, captivated, brave in a process. We're softened. By the love of God, we're captivated by him. And it does something to us. You know, this cross is a dodgy, dodgy little cross, the way it's been made. We want to get a better one. <laughs> but it does the job, right? Does anyone remember our last service in the red building on this block of ground? I don't know how many we had, 40 or 50 of us. It was really significant. We had communion and we had that cross in the middle. And we'd been celebrating what God had done over a hundred years in this church. And people were telling their stories. And we, we didn't want to miss the opportunity to confess the sins of those who have gone before us and our own sins. And so, does anyone remember those who were kneeling? And some of us were kneeling, the leadership of the church were kneeling, representing all the other leaders of the church who have gone before us. And we confessed our sins and their sins. 
because we were trying to say, God, we aren't perfect, but we want to be soft. We want to be captivated and soft. This is about the glory of an empty cross because, Jesus, you died for our sin and you conquered death and sin and you rose again. And we want to be that people. And now we are here in this shiny object called the ministry centre. And it's not about that. It's about the heart of a people who would surround a cross and say, God, have mercy on us. We're sinners. Yet we're saints because you've called us saints. We want to be soft-hearted people and out of that become brave. Amen? That's who we want to be. And has God done something in our church in response to that sort of attitude? Absolutely. And he's still doing work, but he's done so much. And there's this mystery of us playing a role in what God has done. It's not just that we've been lucky. We have been so blessed. But there's something in this church, well before we came as a family, Leanne and I, those of us were part of the church, you bravely said there's, it's time to do something new. And you unanimously, I believe, voted to step out bravely and go into a new day and maybe a new wineskin. God wants to do through this church immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Amen? For his glory. And we don't get to pick what that might look like. The types of faces that would fill this congregation. That's up to him. We just want to be faithful and captivated and brave. I recall so vividly being told by my neighbour, who was Fijian, didn't speak English, he had to sort of sign it, that Rusty had drowned in his pool. He had a good innings. He was 18 years old, human years. And I remember so clearly, as you, those of you who love dogs, going over and finding Ruddy... Soaking wet, drowned. And it's, I was 20 years old and you know, carrying your beloved dog back to your garage was a full on moment. But as I remember it, I think, well done, mate. Gee, you were good and faithful. It's hard to imagine a being that would be more devoted than a dog that's been with you for 18 years, right? And it got me to thinking, this might sound weird, but I can't think of a better picture than Northern Life as a strapping dog ready to go with its tail going, what next, Jesus? <laughs> what next? Do you want us to bark and proclaim what, whatever you want us to do? you want us to be a guard dog against the work of the evil one? Do you want us to chase a frisbee? So whatever you want me to do, check out my tail. Fully devoted. But isn't that convicting when you think, I'm not like that all the time. What we can learn from creation, amen? Not all dogs are like that, but when you get a good dog, it's like, man, can I get a bit of that in my heart's devotion to the Lord? 